Hi, this is Ned Siegfried from Siegfried & Jensen. As proud sponsors of BeliefCast, we hope you are inspired by Todd's weekly podcasts, which contain so many courageous stories of recovery and personal growth. Remember, it's not what happened in the past that matters, it's what happens in the future. We invite you all to work hard and be optimistic about your future. Enjoy today's podcast. Welcome back, everybody. This is Todd Sylvester with the Todd Inspires Belief Cast. Once again, as always, thank you for tuning in and believing in me and in this cause. We are we're making an impact on this world in such a way that I never thought possible when I first started doing this six years ago. And it's amazing where we're at today, you know, and so it's because of you guys for tuning in week after week. So thank you so much. And very fortunate that I have these amazing people come on my podcast. And today's going to be no different. And I know I say that a lot as well, but man, I'm telling you, there's so many people are just amazing, period. <laughs> and today we're joined by a gentleman named Kevin Baker. Kevin, thank you for uh, joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Can you hear me okay? Oh, yeah. You sound great. Awesome. You know, awesome. Kevin, just quickly, just he, he goes around and he shares his unique story of, you know, coming back from failure, rising above expectations and living an amazing life and how it's all possible no matter what stands in your path. And this guy, I'll tell you, when you hear his story, it's going to, it's going to, you know, blow your mind. Honestly, you know, he was sent to prison for two con concurrent seven year sentences. He, you know, robbed a bank twice. He, you know, behind bars, man, he, he just, he, he was on full collapse. He was going to, you know, his life was done basically. And he's turned things around and I'm not, I could go into a bunch more, but I want, I want you guys to hear it from him. So Kevin, uh, man, I can't believe the turnaround you've done in your life. It's just remarkable. Um, I guess, yeah, to, to me, what's remarkable <laughs> the most, um, and what's gotten me here, honestly, is the people in my life. Um, I've been through this whole roller coaster of, of the last 15 years of my life, uh, it's some really amazing people, uh, starting with my family. Um, so before I get into any of my stuff, it's, I'm blessed to be alive. I'm blessed to be here. Um, I'm blessed to be with you today. And, um, thank you. And I've made your acquaintance and your friendship and quite frankly, now have the belief cast, uh, as part of my life, you know, cause you've had yeah. some amazing people on there and, you know, uh, I guess, uh, I guess you want kind of a little bit of what happened. Um, well, before uh, we get there, Kevin, and, and we definitely want to get there, maybe, uh, maybe let's let our listeners know, where did you grow up and tell us yeah. about your childhood? Yeah, well, I was going to go there first. I mean, I grew up uh, in Connecticut, uh, right outside of Hartford in a town called West Hartford, Connecticut, which, um, you know, it was a, it was a middle class, maybe lower half of the middle class. My dad, you know, he busted his tail to try to do the best. My mom worked. Um, but we, you know, we were, I was a, a public park guy, you know, um, right. and it was, a, it was awesome. Uh, you know, and back then in the seventies, it was a different world, you know, that when the sun came up, we left the house and the rule was be home when the streetlights come on and we were you know gone for the day playing me and my buddies and sports or at the park or what have you so it was it was good um i had you know i got into high school my folks 
split when I was halfway through high school. And even that was, it was fine. We were all still friends. Um, my parents did an amazing job, even though they divorced of still both of them still coming to whatever family functions Christmas. It wasn't two Christmases. It wasn't two. We all still got together and my extended right. family was amazing in that. So, you know, I grew up, you know, but I also taught, I mean, I grew up with, uh, a job. I was, you know, taught a work ethic young. I mean, I kid around, but it's the truth. I, I've been working since I was eight years old and I had two jobs when I was eight years old. I had a paper wow. out in the morning and I had a paper out in the afternoon <laughs> and, yeah. and, uh, you know, and, uh, so I grew up like that. I, I, uh, after high school, um, just with some financial situation, we had to put off college. I had to basically go to work and help my dad, uh, pay the bills. And, you know, I basically graduated high school paying a mortgage. Uh, my dad had kind of fallen a little bit apart and fallen a little behind. And, um, I kind of took over in the, as the parental, role in our relationship um but i eventually got back and went to college uh, a year and a half later went to the university of connecticut uh just as they were starting to become a national powerhouse in both men's and women's basketball we were there for the genesis of it um, oh, okay yeah and then you know i got out of college wanting to be a teacher but there were many teaching jobs back then and a friend of mine was in financial services and he said, hey, come down here and sell these annuities. I said, annuity? What the hell is an annuity? Yeah, what's so, that? <laughs> so I got into the basically the financial planning, retirement, income planning business. Um, and uh, and it clicked, man. And uh, I was good at it. I was blessed to have some amazing bosses and mentors and companies. And by 27 years old, I had become a field wholesaler, which is um you start making well into six figures. So yeah. I was blessed. Um, I worked hard, but I also had amazing companies and amazing people and amazing bosses, but success came quick, man. And I mean, by the time I was 30, I was driving a Mercedes and had moved from Boston back to my hometown, uh, bought a nice big house and was, was killing it. Uh, married yeah. my married my bride and we started having more kids joined the country club making a half a million dollars a year it couldn't have been a better outcome for a young middle-class kennedy park hartford kid if you <laughs> if norman yeah. rockwell were to paint it and uh you know but what was what started underlying my life um i played basketball my whole life and soccer oh, okay. and i and I had beaten the hell out of my body. Yeah. Excuse me. And I kept playing basketball well into my 20s, rec leagues and such. And by the time I was 27, uh, I had basically uh, rearranged my lower spine, uh, to put it mildly. And oh, I'd be, yeah. And I was playing ball outside of uh, Boston at a rec league one night. And I remember running down the floor fast break guy went to pass to me i turned kind of back toward him to get it and my entire body locked and my back said, my back said all right dude that's enough we're tired um it took me about two years and in december of 1999 i had my first uh spinal reconstructive surgery 
Oh, and um, had my lower spine rebuilt. I had screws inserted into my sacrum and into my lowest lumbar vertebrae, L5. Uh, rods were inserted to connect these screws, and a paste was put around them to basically fuse. It was a reconstructive and then fusion surgery, and that was my first introduction uh, to narcotic pain meds, which is yeah. you know, where a lot of the where a lot of this story starts to turn yeah. a little bit um well but yeah, that, yeah i was just gonna say yeah your life's going so well you've got everything <laughs> going for you then you have this injury introduced to opiates and, yeah, but, yeah and and back then i mean i was i i i played hard um i was in an industry that played hard and by that i mean a lot of alcohol a lot of conferences you're going mm -hmm. to these wonderful yeah. locations and but the rules back then were simple you might be out till four in the morning with probably your boss, but you better be in the breakout room at 8 a.m. And we mm. always were. Make the bell. So it was a work hard, play hard, and booze was yeah. a big part of it. And, you know, I was part of that whole lifestyle. And I had some other things. I smoked uh, pot back then. Um, and then, like I said, I got Todd, uh, pain medications from the first surgeon. But back then it was Percocet. Yeah. And it wasn't a high dose. And for the next five, six, seven years, the pain was still there. I took the Percocets. And if I had a script for, say, 30 days, on the average month, I might run out in day 28. You know, they, yeah. you know, I took an extra one here and there, but they weren't a problem, is my point. Okay. You get in about eight years after that surgery, and my back is starting to really, uh, uh, the pain was starting to get incredibly more and more. Um, so I knew some more stuff was going on. It was like I had come to terms with the original pain, but now I had a new pain. So I started looking at having uh, a second surgery and about, I don't know, about eight years after my first, I met a guy and he was actually a client and he had been diagnosed with MS Oh, and wow. this is a guy who was a flat out. If you saw him, he was a study. He could have been a model in any magazine. He was six, four, beautiful, played basketball uh, at Dartmouth, which tells you two things. Number one, he was a great athlete. Number two, he's very smart. But Greg introduced me to my first oxy, oxy pill. Um, mm. So the irony is after all my surgeries, my first meeting with what ripped my life to pieces was not actually from the surgeons. Um, it was from a, a colleague, if you will. He said, Hey, try one of these. And I was, I literally, I was reticent. I put it in my pocket and I don't know, two weeks later, I still had it. I said, you know what? One day I put it in my mouth and I swallowed it. And that was the day life went from again you know a super lucky blessed life to starting to turn um my whole body lit up and every addict uh an opiate addict whether it's pills or or other heroin that i've met and talked to in the meetings and everywhere else yeah. we all have the same story todd which is For that sure. first time that first time was life-altering and it was euphoric and the angels sung and the, yeah. every every cell <laughs> yeah. twinkled and um and it was it was all it was game on um 
this guy and I continued to kind of get together once a month and we, he'd share some pills with me and it slowly became evident to me that I really liked these. Um, right. I got into another surgical group to have my second spinal reconstruction. And I had them actually, after my surgery, prescribe me the oxys, which they were all too happy to do back then. Yeah. Right. Um, and I realized that I really, you know, started to like, these things more and more and it was no more like a script would last 90 percent of the uh duration you know the script would last 40 percent, and i was out yeah um i started to uh find different ways um to find the pills through this guy in up in Boston, I'd end up buying them because he was buying them from him a little bit here and there to supplement what the surgeons were giving me. Um, I also found a way to uh, basically forge the prescription that I was getting from the surgeons. Um, back then, this surgical office, for whatever reason, didn't have the traditional uh, prescription pads. They actually printed out your prescription on a regular eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And then the doctor would sign it and it flew. So you can see how easy it would be for somebody to manipulate those. Um, and I started forging scripts, which was, you know, wow. probably the first time I really started letting the addiction steer me. And you talked about the bully and you talk about the yeah. bully. And I started getting bullied by my addiction and it started taking me bad places. Did I your family, did your family, Kevin, know that, you were at this place, you know, struggling um, at this point? After about a year um, okay. uh, from meeting uh, uh, this gentleman and starting to do the pills, I did realize it. And I did confess to my wife one day. I, I sat down on the couch and I said, listen, I'm getting addicted to these things. And she was 100% uh, amazing and supportive. And yeah. we got, I got myself into a uh, program where uh, it was a group program once a week and they would treat us with Suboxone, which was an anti-opiate yeah. and help me get, get clean. And I did, but as many of us do, Todd, it, the bully, you know, didn't yeah. go quietly. Yeah. So six months of good. And then he would show back up and I would slip again. And this went on and on. And uh, the further it went and the, more pills I needed on a daily basis. Um, the lies. And like you said, the bully lies, man. And yeah. the lies came out. So my, my wife and, uh, and by extension, every friend I've, I've ever had, nobody knew that um, I was doing the amount of pills I was doing. Nobody knew I was doing these pills other than, yeah, you know, he's had back surgeries. He pops a pill every once in a while. They didn't know I was now snorting, uh, which became my delivery method. Um, you crush them and you snort them. I was now snorting uh, a dozen pills a day, and that continued to ramp up. Um, when the forging game ran out, I started buying them. Um, and when you start doing 20 pills a day at $30 a pop, yeah. You can start to see, Todd, how when I left the corporate side in the end of 2012, worth about two and a half million dollars, um, 
between some bad business dealings uh, that happened mostly because my head wasn't in them because addiction had taken over. They weren't, I didn't, I got, I got a little uh, screwed over. Isn't the right word. I got left by some business partners that they could have done, you know, a far better job ethically, but I can't put all the blame there because my head wasn't in the game. The, the bully had taken over. So I know if my head was completely in the game, my venture into building my own practice would have gone a lot differently and a lot better. Right. But the long and the short of it is uh, 2012, I left the corporate side. 2015, I was sitting in an office in Hartford, Connecticut, applying for food stamps for my family because between the business failing and losing a few hundred thousand dollars there and spending you know, six, seven, eight hundred dollars a day on my habit, walking into my bank every few days and withdrawing six, seven thousand dollars in cash and telling the bank tellers I had started rehabbing houses and the people who worked for me only wanted to be paid in cash. So that's why I was taken out. You know, I had to lie for everything, right? Wow. As we do. Um, yeah, right. And, and none of my friends knew, and there wasn't a uh, facility, you know, if I went out to dinner, I, I knew immediately where the best bathroom was to go in there, find privacy, crush a pill. If we went to a sporting event, I knew the bet, you know, and that became my life, man. Um, wow. Yeah. And so, you know, like I said, by the end of 2015, I had gone from a dream life to, uh, borrowing money from friends and family um, blaming all the financial need, if you will, on the business losses. So I had a cover for that. Right. Right. Um, all, all my financial hardship was not me. It was because I got screwed over back then by these business guys. So I had cover for my wife who knew we were, we quit the country club and she obviously could tell that financially we were no longer in position, but understood that it was because of these business losses. I, didn't let her on that I was, you know, spending six, seven, eight thousand dollars a week. Um, Jeez. And wow. with the mortgage company starting to call because I'd started missing payments and other bills, including only owing a drug dealer um, uh, several thousand dollars. Um, one morning, and this came without warning to me. It came without planning or plotting it out or casing the joint, as they would say. One morning, I woke up in January of 2016 and said, we need some money. You're going to get foreclosed and you got these guys calling you. And next thing I knew, Ted, I was walking into a bank uh, with a knife, all masked up, all masked up and ran out of the bank with $15,000, got in my car and drove off. What, um, um, I know this is, you know, kind of a loaded question, but when you were, after you had left the bank, were you like going, I can't believe I just did that. No, I didn't. Um, okay. I was so, yeah, the bully, you know, to keep yeah. using your, um, I left the bank, got on the highway and hightailed it to meet, a, a dealer who was going to give me more pills. Oh, I, goodness. Wow. It didn't really sink in. I was in, listen, you, you go back, a, going back a few months 
before that bank robbery, um, uh, the summer before when things, you know, when I literally stopped paying bills and I was in a world where, um, I thought on a daily basis how to kill myself. I was there. I wondered about, you know, getting going in the garage and getting in the car, but then it would come back. I said, I can't do that. You know, Katie and the girls come home. That's not something you want to see your children to see. Um, we lived in a house out by the woods. I said, Oh, it's winter. I can walk out in the woods and just fall asleep in the cold and die. I mean, this was my daily living was to snort pills and think about killing myself day after day. Um, mm. And so running into that bank, like I said, it wasn't planned. Um, it went so well. I am ashamed to say that two weeks later, I ran into the exact same bank and put these poor women through a second trauma in under two weeks. Oh my goodness. Um, and it's a shame of my life. I have four daughters. Yeah. Uh, the reason I went to that bank um, on that particular morning is because I knew once that bully or whoever it was said, let's go rob a bank. Yeah. I knew, I knew that that was the bank because it's a small country setting and there were only four little women who worked in there. There was no mail. There was no security. I knew this because I had been doing my father's banking on his behalf because he was in and out of, uh, a nursing home and I had power of attorney. So I knew the bank, I knew the women, I sat with them and yet I still masked up and twice put them through hell. Um, after the second robbery, it did not go as well as the first. I was spotted. My car was identified. I got chased through about uh, 10 different Connecticut towns as well as into Massachusetts at one point. Wow. On back, back country roads going 85 miles an hour, blowing by school buses, blowing by people, putting everybody's life in jeopardy. They locked the town down uh, where the bank was uh, and somehow uh, outmaneuvered them all and made it home. Um, no way. And to go back to your question, uh, after the first robbery, the second one, when I got home, I was shaking. And my wife said, what's what's wrong you know I said, oh nothing nothing i was i was in shock it yeah. that's when it that's when it really did hit me what had you know what i had allowed my life to become and i sat there visibly shaking and your wife guess like, what? has no clue yeah. no you just robbed a bank for the second time no and wow. and about 20 minutes later i got in my car and guess where i went i went to meet another dealer and give her money and get more pills Jeez. and were you, you know, thinking, like said, were you thinking uh were you thinking at this point they were chasing you so they probably have a make on you and they're going to come yeah. get you yeah there was a lot going on that i knew i was i yeah. was uh i was hit so that was a monday by saturday they had called uh somehow got a hold of my wife I was out on that Saturday again, meeting a dealer, uh, the prevailing theme, right? Yeah. And they had told my wife what was going on. And by then she had kind of put it together with some pictures that came out on patch and some other stuff. So they basically told her on that Saturday afternoon, we're coming for your husband tonight, you know, get the girls and get out of the house and which she did. And I got back that Saturday and they, uh, pulled me out of the house at gunpoint. Um, oh man. 
uh, basically they called my cell phone and said, you know, this is the West Harford police. Mr. Baker, we got a call that you were in your house and you are suicidal and you have a knife. I said, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, we got, I said, no, no, I'm fine. I hung up and they called again and again. I finally said, what? And he said, listen, Mr. Baker, I've got a, I've got an officer out in front of your house. Can you just go out front and give him a wave? We're just doing a wellness check to make sure you're okay. And once I stepped out of the house to give him a wave, I realized there were uh, four automatic weapons perched on the side of my driveway with four state troopers pointed at me. Um, They came out of the woods. The dogs were barking. They were yelling again on my knees. It was a scene right from the movies, uh, absent the helicopter. I didn't warrant a helicopter, I guess. But yeah, wow. Yeah. And so they sat with me that night while they got the warrant. And on Sunday morning, February 14th, think about that day. Yeah. um, In 2016, I was arrested on Valentine's Day. Um, And as I look back um, and as I started finding the light after a while, I've come to realize, Todd, that February 14th, 2016 was not the worst day of my life. It was, in fact, the day that the Connecticut State Police saved my life. Um, Mm -hmm. Had I not been arrested, I know for a fact, I know for a fact that by April 1st, I would have been dead. I would have either finally had succumbed to the daily voice of taking my own life. Or I would have overdosed. This was right when fentanyl was just starting to appear. Yeah. Um, or I would have overdosed another way. Or I would have crashed and rolled my truck again, racing somewhere to meet a dealer. I would have been dead by April 1st had they not saved my life that that February 14th. Wow. Uh, yeah, I, got, I was arrested the uh, first week in there detoxing in a prison cell. Um, the darkness came again. And... I will tell you that um, in a Hartford, Connecticut County jail cell in the suicide watch um, arm, if you will, or block, what you have it, where they had me. Yeah. um, The only reason I'm here to talk to you today, again, because I did fail and I did give up. I had the sheet tied around one end, which was my neck. But in the suicide watch cell, there was nowhere to tie the other end. And that's a big part of why I'm still here. Jeez. I remember, yeah, I remember thinking, all right, if we can't do this, can I climb on top of this little, you know, toilet sink apparatus and jump head first? And if I hit my head hard enough on the concrete floor, will that be enough to end life? And uh, these are the thoughts that were going through my head the first 48 hours after my arrest. I can um, I can only imagine. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And then uh just um a few days later I finally got my first call with my family and my wife got on the phone, the most amazing and strong person I've ever known and her and my daughters um yeah. I mean, with love beyond measure, they saved my life yet again, because my wife knew where I was mentally. Yeah. And she said, listen, listen, you've got to fight. You've got these girls. You've got these girls who are going to need you. You've got to fight. And uh, 
And that phone call, you know, was another time that I, my life was saved. Um, man by others. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, our then 12 year old got on the phone and she immediately said, daddy, I love you. I forgive you. I know you're going to be good. And that was a lift. And then our five-year-old got on the phone and it's the yin and yang. And in only the way an innocent five-year-old could ask, uh, came the dagger. And she says, daddy, did you know that you were taking other people's money? Oh man. Yeah, man. That (laughs) one, that one, that one hurt. And, and as it should, um, so anyways, uh, <laughs> I was, I was put through kind of the Connecticut prison system, um, evaluated, finally determined I was no longer a risk to myself and, uh, began what became, as you said, the beginning of two seven year prison sentences. Um, they were concurrent. I got two years for each. I pled out, I pled guilty from the beginning, um, yeah. the first meeting I had with the attorney, I said, I don't want anything other than to take responsibility for this. Um, you know, and he naturally said, well, we can look at the warrant. And, look, and I said, listen, man, I did this. I own it. Let's. Well, that, that's pretty rare, Kevin, to hear someone say, you know what? I'm just going to own it. That's pretty amazing. I, I, I guess I just, I, I had to, I mean, yeah. I owned it. You know, I did. Um, wow. So that's where I was, you know, and about 18 months later, I started, I I started coming back, if you will. It took me a good 18 months though, of castigating myself and beating Mm -hmm. the hell out of myself emotionally and mentally. Um, I also had to go through a process of uh, assimilating myself because a middle-aged college educated white guy in a state prison, especially where I was, I was put into the supermax facility at first, Mm. you know, you kind of stand out. Um, and I fortunately had some, some guys immediately kind of mentor me. It's kind of like that cliche of a guy going to jail and finding a mentor, you know? Yeah. But I had some guys basically say, listen, dude, this is, this is how you gotta play it. Um, and so I had to kind of abandon the guy that I was driving a Mercedes and going to Fenway park and staying in a suite and become basically what my crimes were, which is a, a violent bank robber. Um, mm. you know, and yeah. so uh, eventually I started through again, people, my family, uh, my father and I had an amazing relationship where he, he became my dad again, which was like one of the blessings I take out of this is for, you know, when I got arrested after being the father in our relationship, since I was 16, he now became my dad again. And he visited me every week when he could and was, you know, always saying, listen, man, I'm proud of you. We're going to get through this. Um, uh, along with my oldest daughter, Sydney, she was a rock for me from day one. She, uh, was there for me mentally, emotionally, without judgment. And I had some friends and I had some people that I had barely known maybe in passing that wrote me letters, some saying, thank you. Um, I was getting addicted to the pain meds or I'm addicted to Xanax or I'm an alcoholic and seeing what happened to you. Thank you. Cause it's given me pause. So I got some of those letters, which was, 
an amazing gift just to, you know, again, it's perspective, Todd, and I could either let this thing ruin me or I could start to let this thing strengthen me and come out of the other end better for it. Um, yeah. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, I got a ton of questions for you. <laughs> yeah. That's I, it. I mean, that's, uh, that's an amazing story, but, but I know there's more to your story because all the good you're doing now, but I just have a, and I know this is also a tough question. I'm sure. Is there, is there a lesson that you learned in prison that stands out above the rest? I was, is there something that like, man, this is what I learned in that six years that, uh, you know, that really made an impact. I, I know you have many lessons, but is there one that yeah. stands out? Um, the resiliency of the human spirit. Ooh. Yeah. Um, and I talk about that in my speech. Uh, one of my speeches um, is I learned that the human spirit, and I'm not talking just me specifically, I'm talking in general, it is inherent in each and every one of us. I know this. Regardless of the situation, regardless of the obstacles, I firmly do believe through my own experience through the experience of my family because they had to have resiliency. Right. Um, and through the experience of, I, I, I dedicated the last uh, uh, four and a half years of my uh, prison to reading and learning and looking for stories. And I came across so many amazing people who had overcome obstacles and so that's the biggest thing I think I came out is the fact that regardless of what's going on, you, your spirit, whether it's a small thing, whether it's a, you know, I got to divorce my spouse or I got to deal with my child who's in trouble, whatever it is, Todd, we right. can get through it. The, that each and every one of us with help, I couldn't right. get here, as I said at the beginning, without help and it's not that we're all resilient warriors who can get through anything on our own. It's that we're all resilient. Yeah. And with the help right. of, of people who care, we can listen, man, if I could come back from wanting to kill myself in a suicide watch cell, detoxing, drinking water out of the toilet in, oh. in County, because the guards thought it'd be funny to put the quote unquote, rich white guy in the cell where the water didn't work. So oh I'm gosh. detoxing. They did not give me treatment for um, the detoxing, which I found out that several others through prison are like, they didn't help you. You know, they didn't give you some box. No, nope. they let me sit there and just basically suffer. just throw up and shit and suffer. Mm -hmm. um, so if I can come back from that, yeah. Um, People can come back. And again, people have it worse. And unfortunately, you know, but I, yeah, you're going to come through. You're going to be bloody. You're going to be beaten. Yeah. But it, it, the one thing I've learned, Todd, is that people can come back. Wow. You know, I love that. Um, yeah. So that's, that's a beautiful message. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, Kevin, I know now you are a messenger <laughs> of all this, you know, the things you've already shared with us, but you know, you present now, you love speaking, you love helping other people talk, talk to us a little bit about what that looks like and kind of what your overall, I guess, mission is now in life. All right. Um, well, when I was in the financial business, um, I was a wholesaler, which a large part of my job was to convince, 
advisors to sell their clients the products that I work for. You know, like I work for MetLife. Um, right. And a lot of that is public speaking. You know, I'd get up and stand in front of whether yeah. it be 20 advisors or 200 and give give them talks about the MetLife products or the Sun America when I was there. Um, so public speaking was always kind of natural to me. Um, you know, I know that most of the human species, it's, it's a fear greater than getting attacked by a shark or even death. But for me, it came natural. So about two years into my stay, a young woman who I, we've always considered to be my fifth daughter or fifth daughter. She worked for me early on in my career Okay, and she came to see me and we set up a special visit. She flew up to Connecticut, spent the day with Katie and the girls because they were close and then came to see me the next day in prison. And she says, heavy, you're a train wreck and people will pay to see a train wreck. So get it together, start writing speeches, and that's what you're going to do. And um, it kind of gave me permission, Todd, to what I had already begun thinking would be my way back in terms of making a living and trying to help Katie put these girls through school. But the bigger or just as equally important is... It's cliche, but if I can speak to a room full of people and one person comes up to me afterwards and says, man, you've given me a lot to think about in terms of my own behavior, my own life and my own addiction or my own bully, then it's worth it, man. I mean, what could be better than to, (laughs) uh, you know, I need to make a living. I, I, I need to earn money to help my wife and these girls. And, you know, um, I mean, they lost you know, they lost a the lifestyle. You know, they were being raised as country club kids. Right. Um, and all that went away. And yet they're still in my corner. Um, and now the goal is just to put these girls through college and help my wife do that. If I can do that and make an impact, um, then I'm truly blessed, man. I'll, 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 I'll die a happy person, you know? Um, so yeah, it's the message that I give is it's about addiction and it's about, you know, in your terms, the bully and what I allowed to happen, but it's about the human spirit and it's about how uniquely beautiful each and every one of us are. Um, one of the things that came across in my struggles to find my humanity again, you know, and come back from being, the bank rob, you know, um, yeah. I came to realize, you know, how cool each and every human being really is when you think about it, because yeah. uh, there have been about 117 billion humans to have come and gone so far. Mm. And yet you are the only Todd Sylvester that is you. Yeah. Uh, so the odds are one in 117 billion. So part <laughs> of my message is wake up man every day and be happy you won the lottery you you had a one in 117 billion chance and you got it you are you so i talk about that and i talk about love uh, i lost 2173 days to my addiction in prison and quite frankly far more than that because i was far gone yeah as you know well before my arrest i was i was mentally gone and checked out of my family's life years before but my prison sentence i ended up 2173 days so part 
of that is realizing how finite, as special as each of us are, we're only here for but a glimpse, you know? And so I try to remind people that, listen, those things that you've got on your bucket list, get going because before you know it, yeah, you know, before you know it, it's gone. It's done. Um, yeah. It's done. And, yeah. and then just the, the kind of the third message I try to boil into it all is what we were talking about before, which is the resiliency of each of us and uh, the ability to overcome, uh, you know, obstacles. Uh, I believe that as long as there is breath in your lungs and blood pumping in your heart, there is nothing that you can't overcome. Um, and I do believe it. And I was given grace, uh, by having the state police arrest me on February 14th. I was given grace by having Katie and my girls tell me fight. I was given grace by my father and by my daughter, Sydney. Um, so my life was saved and I have who knows how many days left, but whatever they, whatever that number ends up being, I want them to count, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I owe, I owe so many, so much. I owe society so much. Yeah. Um, I do. I, I mean, I, I owe the state of Connecticut $45,000 a year for six years. Cause that's what it costs to incarcerate me. Mm-hmm. I owe, you know, the people who I hurt, I owe the police officers whose lives I put in danger. I owe the women at the bank. I have a, a huge debt to pay and I plan on trying for the life of me to do it, man. Yeah. Wow. Man. I, it's amazing. Your attitude, Kevin, I I'm really impressed just, and I know you don't look at it that way. You're, you're just doing what you know is right now. And, and it just, but it's really impressive that you've, you know, at the brink of wanting to jump off the, the toilet in prison in your cell to try to hopefully end your life. But here you are now, you know, yeah. you're, you're giving back and you're trying to make amends with the, the, the community and the people in your, uh, that you live by. And it's just, it really is amazing to, and I, one of the things that really stood out, Kevin, is when you said people can come back. I, I think yeah. that what a great message for this is, I mean, that's a good, that's actually a good title for what we're talking about here is, you know what, wherever you're at, you can come back. Kevin is living proof of that. Yeah. And look, there, there are people in your life that their opinion matters. And there are people that, you know, might have an opinion about you and how you're living and they shouldn't, it shouldn't matter to you. The people in my life, meaning my family, and my closest friends are all been not only amazingly supportive, but they've shown radical forgiveness. Yeah. Um, There are people, Todd, who I'm, you know, who don't want anything to do with me and I understand and I respect their decision. Yeah. But as long as you know, you can come back. And as long as the, the, there's the kind of the people under your tent, that's all that matters, man. Yeah. You know, in the end, in the yep. end. Now I have a bigger, you know, almost, I don't, I don't want to say spiritual, but I have a bigger mission, which is, as I said, to kind of, you know, get the red off my ledger. And again, if, you know, I did one speech back in December and, and a gentleman who actually I had 
he had coached me when I was a kid playing soccer. Mm. And all these years later, he walks into this room where I'm about to present. And he says, what are you doing here? Do you work here? I said, oh, you don't. I said, you don't. They haven't. Because he's actually kind of like a satellite. He's not in the, the office 24. Yeah. Or, uh, and I said, oh, you don't know what's about to go on here, do you? He goes, no. <laughs> and so I gave my presentation and he came up to me afterwards and was bawling. And oh. I started crying. And one of my daughters had come with me to film it um and she's looking at us and she's crying i mean and it and he just was full of gratitude and and pride and it, it's it's a moment i will never forget and it's you know some other people have come back to me after i've talked and said thank you and like i said i got letters and yeah um that's it's corny maybe to some people it's cliche but again todd if i can help put these girls through college and help you know pay back society in some small way um i'm, I'm good you know You're good to go yeah yeah no, i agree and i know it does sound cliche but it's the truth if you because if you save one person Think about what they're going to go do with that. And then they're, they're going to touch someone's life. And then it just kind of yeah. snowballs and there's that ripple yeah. effect, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. it's, it can be exponential growth. Um, yeah. wow. You know, and I talk, I talk, when I talk, I talk about uh, a concept I've learned through DBT uh, therapy, um, which is radical acceptance. Yep. And I, you know, I had to radically accept what my life had become and what my life is, yeah. you know, my life is now a convicted felon. Um, and according to the state, a, a convicted dangerous felon, it was a violent, uh, crime in, that I didn't hurt anybody, but that I carried a knife, which is, you know, so I needed to radically accept that. And right. the people in my life have radically accepted me. Um, and they're pushing me and they're behind me and dozens of friends from the industry are all about trying to get me hired to speak at their companies. Um, I've just done a call today with a guy I went to high school with, and I've known my whole career. We're going to say, and he's bringing me in to speak to his company. And it's, uh, like I said at the beginning, man, I, I, uh, I'm blessed that I have such people in my life, you know, Absolutely. but the, the forgiveness and, and I, you know, and the biggest theme, if you will, of my speech is all about perspective and yeah. looking at, looking at life now differently than I did before and having this gift given to me to pause and look at things from different angles um, and learn that with perspective, again, we can get through anything um and again it's not to say that there won't be sorrow there won't be pain yeah you know it's not just wake up every day and oh they took my house but that that's great you know that's not yeah. what i'm trying to right. get at yeah, man. sure it's gonna hurt from time to time life is painful but the you know the gift of perspective um has been probably the biggest thing uh with the resiliency and it all fits together you know yeah, 
Um, in in small ways and in big, you know, I mean, I get stuck in traffic one night coming back from driving my daughter to college. And I tell my buddy the next morning and I'm talking to him about, he's like, Oh, you must've been going bullshit. It's, you know, it's Sunday night. You're parked (laughs) on the highway on a Sunday night at 10 o'clock. I said, Mac, are you kidding me? I said, I'm sitting in this truck. Now, granted, it's a beat up old Jeep. It's not the Mercedes I once had. I'm sitting in this truck listening to music that I like. Yeah. A year ago, I was sitting in prison, brother. Traffic yeah. is bliss. Wow. <laughs> and it's, you know, it, like I said, it's perspective. You can, you, you can always have it worse. There's always going to be somebody better off. And there's always going to be somebody worse off. And you got to just deal with what you got to deal with. You know? Yeah, for sure. Well, um, I have a question for you. If there, if there's yes, someone, sir. if there's someone listening to your voice right now, Kevin, who's in that dark place, they're struggling. They're not sure what to do. What, what would you tell that one person right now? Who's listening to you in that, in that space there. And I believe this with every cell in my body, they might not. There are people in their life that if they ask for help, will help. Mm-hmm. You know, I lived um, for 15 years in private shame. You know, nobody knew my addiction was where it was. None of my, no, I didn't share it with anybody. And again, my wife early on, you know, knew that I was prone to it. And had I not hidden it from her, and if it wasn't her, it would have been any one of a dozen other people in my life if I reached out. So right. no matter how alone you may feel and no matter how ashamed you may be, um, you know, the old Bible quote, knock and the door shall be in, you know, people will be there for you. And I and I talk about this. It's funny you bring it up or, or fortuitous because I talk about this exact point and in my speech um, is that if you are in that place, whether it's a, a substance abuse problem, whether it's a domestic, whatever it is, whatever it is that is troubling you, there are people I guarantee that will help you if you ask. So have the courage, mm-hmm. which I wish I had more courage because I had people who would have stepped up even more and helped me get off that addiction train that I was on. Right. So, and, and I, and, and I say this and I mean it. Um, if you're listening to this and you do feel you're in a place where you need something, some help, some body, some, what, again, bad marriage, bad drug, addiction, whatever it is. If you're ashamed to talk to anybody in your life, I get it. I've been there. And thus, if that's the case, Todd, and I mean this sincerely, who's ever listening, reach out to me because I'll pick up the damn phone and we will spend as many minutes, hours and days talking wow. as is needed because I owe. Wow. Well, that so was going to be my next question, actually, is if someone does want to reach out to you, Kevin, and mm-hmm. ask you a question or talk to you and, and then you know, learn more about your presentations and things, what's the best way for them to do that? Probably the best is through uh, the website that, that we, we built, um, kevinbakerpresents.com. Okay. Um, all my contact info is on there. Uh, shoot me a message, shoot me an email. When I present, I 
you know, I say, listen, if you want my cell phone number, come up, I'll give that to you. Um, but probably the easiest way is just to go to Kevin Baker presents, which is a website that, uh, that we put together. It's got, you know, my material and clips and all that, uh, information and blogs that I've been writing and, uh, speeches and stuff and ways to hire me, ways to reach me. So again, I mean it, man. Um, I've been there. I was ashamed. I wish I had more strength to ask some of my friends for help. Um, and like I said, if you're in a place where you're in the same, reach out to me. It's a complete stranger. You don't have to feel, you know, I'm here. Like I said, it's, uh, I got, I got red on my ledger, man. I got (laughs) And I got limited days left. We're only given so many days on this little blue marble. Yeah. Wow. And, and, yeah. yeah. And before I, you know, I, I would be remiss having uh, not turned it back and said, you know, your belief cast and what I've seen in going in there and hearing your story uh, is amazing. And um, the fact that you have made your life's mission to do good with what you've been through is uh, is awesome. And it's, oh, and it's awe inspiring and, and it's a place that I hope someday I can get to in terms of the numbers of people that you reach Todd with your message. I think it's just amazing. And oh, thank you. Thank oh. you. That, that means the world to me, Kevin. And I'm, I'm, I can't thank you enough and how grateful I am that I now know you and that we can, we can be friends, even though we're on the opposite sides of the country and, yep. uh, but yeah, it's great to just know you. And I, and I do believe you when you say you're there to help anybody, I, I, I can feel it in your words. And, and it's amazing. I, I've noticed this a lot when people go through something really difficult and they get past it. It's almost like a natural feeling to like, you know what? I now want to give back because I'm in such a good place and I want to help someone along the road. So I just love what you're doing, man. And I just, I'm so, I'm so impressed with you and everything you're doing, brother. Well, that's awesome. Coming from you, that's that's makes my day, man. I don't, you know, will carry me through many days to come. Awesome, because um, awesome. it's it's the the love and the respect and the uh, appreciation. Like I said, it's it's really cool to see you doing what you've been doing, and quite frankly, to have met you know uh, many others. You and I were talking about some mutual friends and how yeah. you and I came to. And what's really, really been cool over the last several months is meeting people like you. And I've met, you know, many. And it seems like you're all based somewhere in Utah, by the way, for some there must be something <laughs> out there. But I've met yeah, some we got amazing, some really good water out here. <laughs> exactly. I've met some amazing people who have gone the road you and I have gone, have fought you know, demons, um, whether it be addiction or violence or what have you. And, uh, it's like I said, the human spirit is resilient and can do amazing things. And it's just cool to have met so many people who are doing those amazing things. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Your story is amazing. You're amazing. I just appreciate you sharing this with our listeners today and and uh, we were just, yeah, we were all just blessed uh, to hear your story today. So uh, I've been blessed to be with you, man. Thank yeah. you. You're welcome. And uh, there you go, everyone. I told you today was going to be amazing. Kevin Baker, please check out his website, Kevin Baker Presents. And uh, 
you know, reach out to him, ask him a question. He's obviously very willing and very open to helping anybody. So please reach out to him. And I can't wait for you guys to, to listen to this episode and share it with someone and especially someone, you know, that might be struggling and you're not sure how to break the ice with them, share the, share the link to this episode to kind of break the ice. And then you can follow up and ask them what they got out of it. And then maybe it, it puts on a conversation where they can get some help. So thank you for believing in me. Thanks to my sponsors, Siegfried and Jensen, Wasatch Recovery, Thread Wallets, and the music that you listened to at the very beginning, at the very end of this is by my good friend, the award-winning pianist, Paul Cardall. He's an amazing man. So thank you for all that. And one last thank you to Kevin. Thank you for your time, brother. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. You betcha. Everyone, Till next time, man.